Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, October 16th. In today's news, coronavirus hospitalizations are rising in most states. President Trump was warned that Rudy Giuliani was the target of a Russian intelligence operation. And Trump rejects emergency aid to help California recover from the worst fires in state history. But first, the big idea. Separated by five states, two television news outlets, and a deep trough of mutual animosity, Trump and Joe Biden held dueling town halls on Thursday night that offered a jarring contrast of their opposing political styles and approaches to major issues like the pandemic. The split-screen events, with Trump on NBC in Miami and Biden on ABC in Philadelphia, appeared to be broadcast from entirely different dimensions or planets. The soft-spoken Biden leaned back in a white chair, relaxed and conversational as he hit upon notes of optimism and uplift. Trump's appearance was heated and at times abrasive, with the candidate leaning forward as he defended his record and challenged the motivations of moderator Savannah Guthrie. In a rapid-fire 60 minutes, Trump doubted the effectiveness of wearing masks to prevent the virus from spreading, refused to denounce the baseless QAnon conspiracy theory, repeatedly declined to say whether he was tested for the coronavirus before the last debate, and battled with Guthrie, who pressed him with details and a mastery of the facts that other moderators have not possessed when sparring with him. Trump said his FBI director, Chris Wray, was, quote, not doing a very good job because he does not embrace the president's false claims of widespread voter fraud. He denounced white supremacy after being asked why he would not do so in the first debate, and he predicted a red wave on November 3rd, even though many of his campaign officials expect him to lose. In one of the most notable exchanges, Trump said he did not know about QAnon, a loose-knit online community that was recently banned from Facebook after sharing false stories, including ones about Democrats abusing children. Supporters of the group regularly appear with signs and apparel at Trump's rallies. Trump said on the NBC town hall, quote, they are very strongly against pedophilia, and I agree with that. The president said under questioning by Guthrie that his lungs were infected during his bout with the coronavirus and that he had a little bit of a temperature, but he didn't answer repeatedly when asked when he was tested and how often he was tested. He also refused to apologize for recently retweeting a false conspiracy theory that holds that the Obama administration faked the death of Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks, and may have orchestrated the murder of U.S. Special Forces personnel. Trump said it was just a retweet, and therefore he was not responsible for its accuracy. Guthrie replied that Trump's the president, adding, quote, you're not like someone's crazy uncle who can retweet whatever. Trump responded by calling the media so fake and so corrupt and saying he needs social media to get the word out. While Trump sparred in Miami with Guthrie, my colleagues Mike Shearer, Josh Dossie, and Jenna Johnson report that the mood in Philly resembled an academic policy discussion more than a political showdown. Biden chatted amiably with ABC's George Stephanopoulos and bantered with some of the voters who asked him questions. Often he'd follow up and ask if he satisfied what they wanted to know and he offered to talk more with at least one voter afterward. Biden reiterated his usual campaign talking points, saying little surprising. He spoke about taxes, fracking, outreach to black voters, foreign relations, and the pandemic. 
He reiterated the importance of wearing masks, again saying that if he were president, he would pressure governors and local leaders to institute mandates, but he said he would not impose fines for people who refuse to take a coronavirus vaccine once it's available. The separate town halls took place on what would have been the night of the second scheduled presidential debate, which Trump withdrew from after the Commission on Presidential Debates announced that it would be held virtually. The final debate is still scheduled to take place next Thursday, October 22nd, with plans for both candidates to meet in a direct face-to-face debate in Nashville. The debate is expected to follow the same rules as the first one, with 12 feet of distance between the two candidates. The Trump and Biden campaigns have representatives that are scheduled to meet later today to discuss final preparations and other proposed precautions. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Friday. Number one, for the first time since July, the number of newly reported coronavirus infections in the United States yesterday was 64,000. More than 36,000 Americans this morning are hospitalized nationally with COVID amid a long-feared autumnal rise of infections and serious illnesses. This is not a regional crisis. It is a national one. 44 states and D.C. have higher caseloads than they did in mid-September. The virus is spreading in rural communities in our heartland, far from the coastal cities hammered early. Wisconsin set a record yesterday when it surpassed 4,000 new daily cases Illinois also reported more than 4,000 eclipsing records set during the state's first wave in April. Ohio set a new high, as did Indiana, New Mexico, North Dakota, Montana, and Colorado. In El Paso, Texas, officials have ordered new restrictions and lockdowns amid a frightening surge. Some hospitals in the upper Midwest and Great Plains have become jammed with patients, and they're running out of intensive care beds. Wisconsin, for example, has just opened a field hospital on the grounds of the Wisconsin State Fair outside Milwaukee. They say it will be able to treat 500 patients and they expect to have to use the beds because the hospitals are overwhelmed. Montana reported a record 301 hospitalized COVID patients last night with 98% of its inpatient beds occupied in Yellowstone County, which is home to the city of Billings, the state's most populous county. During the past week, at least 20 states have set record averages for new infections and a dozen have hit record hospitalization rates. After that midsummer spike in the Sunbelt, the country registered a decline in cases in August. It bottomed out over Labor Day weekend. The increase since then has been followed by a more modest rise in deaths, which is a silver lining that could reflect in part improved patient care from battle-tested medical workers. Also, the widespread use of powerful steroids and other treatments has lowered mortality rates among people who are severely ill. That's good news. But epidemiologists caution that most people remain susceptible to the virus and transmission is likely to be facilitated by colder weather. Not only do people spend more time indoors, but the dry indoor environment is congenial to the spread of respiratory viruses. The cumulative number of cases in the United States since the start of the pandemic is going to surpass 8 million later today, according to a tally that's been kept by our colleagues Joel Achenbach and Jacqueline Dupree. The official death toll in America stands just shy of 217,000. Whether this represents a second wave or even considering the summer sunbelt spike a third, it's a matter of semantics. The message from infectious disease experts is clear and emphatic, and I cannot repeat it enough. This virus is not going to go away magically, and everyone needs to hunker down because winter is coming. Number two. U.S. intelligence agencies warned the White House last year that President Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, 
was the target of an influence operation by Russian intelligence. This is according to four former intelligence officials familiar with the matter who talked to my colleagues, Shane Harris, Ellen Nakashima, Greg Miller, and Josh Dowsey. The warnings were based on multiple sources, including intercepted communications that showed Giuliani was interacting with people closely tied to Russian intelligence during a December 2019 trip to Ukraine, where he was gathering information that he thought would expose corrupt acts by Joe and Hunter Biden. The intelligence raised concerns that Giuliani was being used as a pawn to feed Russian misinformation to the president. The warnings to the White House, which have not been previously reported, led National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien to caution Trump in a private conversation that any information Giuliani brought back from Ukraine should be considered contaminated by Russia. But O'Brien emerged from his meeting with the president uncertain about whether he had gotten through. Trump, according to a former official who talked to O'Brien, merely shrugged his shoulders at the warning and dismissed concern about his personal lawyer's activities by saying, quote, that's Rudy. That's Rudy. The information that Giuliani sought in Ukraine is similar to what's contained in the emails and other correspondence published this week in the New York Post, which the paper says came from the laptop of Hunter Biden and were provided by Giuliani and Steve Bannon, who's facing federal criminal indictment. The Washington Post is unable to verify the authenticity of those alleged communications. Several senior administration officials all had a common understanding that Giuliani was being targeted by the Russians, not just O'Brien, but also Attorney General Bill Barr, Ray, the FBI director, and White House counsel Pat Cipollone. In a text message last night, Giuliani said he was never informed that Andre Derkak, a former KGB officer and a pro-Russia lawmaker in Ukraine whom he met on December 5th in Kiev, was a Russian intelligence asset. But yet again, Giuliani met with him in New York two months later. Twitter overnight, meanwhile, changed the rule that blocked users from sharing the Hunter Biden story. The link to the New York Post story will still be blocked on Twitter under a policy that prohibits sharing people's personal information. The company said it made the decision after receiving blowback over the previous 24 hours that its new policy on hacked materials, as written, could result in undue censorship of journalists and whistleblowers. Going forward, the company will remove content only if it's directly posted by hackers or those acting in concert with them. It will label other tweets in that vein questionable. Another factor that drove this policy change is that Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee are voting to subpoena Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey to testify before their panel about this incident on October 23rd. Number three, fueled by extreme heat and tinder dry conditions, wildfires exploded across California last month, blazing through almost 1.9 million acres, destroying nearly 1,000 homes and killing at least three people. One wildfire, the Creek Fire, became the largest blaze in California history and grew so fierce it spun up fire tornadoes with 125-mile-an-hour winds. You know that. But Donald Trump this week has formally rejected an emergency disaster declaration that would open up hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding for areas devastated by those fires. Trump's been belligerent toward California's Democratic-dominated state government, blaming their oversight for record-setting fires. Most scientists say it's climate change that's the most significant factor driving these bigger, fiercer fires. And the federal government, for its part, manages 57% of California's forests. Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, plans to appeal Trump's decision. Sadly, the West continues to burn. 
The Cameron Peak Fire has just become the biggest blaze in Colorado's history. That fire started back on August 13th, and it is still expanding. Two months later, it's now burned through more than 164,000 acres. And Trump's being petty and vindictive in other ways as well. The latest is that he's trying to exclude cities led by Democratic mayors from getting coronavirus-related grants. The Transportation Department quietly filed a notice in the Federal Register this week that said it will use a presidential memo calling for punishing so-called anarchist jurisdictions when deciding which cities should get money under a coronavirus relief program. Mike Laris reports that this declaration could deprive cities such as Portland, Seattle, and New York City, which Trump has designated as, quote, permitting anarchy, of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars for roads and other infrastructure projects. Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao is running point on this operation. Representatives from Seattle and Portland say the cities are exploring legal options, and a spokeswoman for New York Mayor Bill de Blasio said this is nothing more than political retribution, promising, quote, if the Trump administration tries to take away our funds, we'll see them in court. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, October 16th. Our show is produced by Ariel Plotnick. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. I'm James Hellman. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you on Monday. The Daily 202 is brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and the new podcast, Caring for Tomorrow. I'm Joan London, the host of the series. Please join us as we explore the challenges and solutions that are defining the future of healthcare. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.